In the mid-1980s, in Japan, a young girl returned home running. I'm back, she called out, as she rushed into her room to drop her bag. It's common in Japanese homes to announce your return, even if you're alone. But what's unusual is for a Japanese girl to rush onto her Famicom. In 1983, Nintendo released the Family Computer, or Famicom, an entertainment system that could play a whole suite of games, including the popular Super Mario Bros. and The Legend of Zelda. The Famicom might be forgotten today, but back then, its US release revitalized the video game industry that had lost gamers who had turned to computers. The girl was glued onto her Famicom, ignoring her mother's small talk or realizing that it was time to eat. I'm back, her father, Ken Kutaragi, called out. He took out his shoes, loosened his tie, and placed his briefcase onto the couch. Walking in, he noticed his daughter using the Famicom yet again, eyes glued and completely oblivious that her father was back. If all I needed was a Famicom to have her quietly seated at home, I should have gotten it earlier, Ken might have thought as he sat down beside her. On the screen, it could be any single game, but very likely it was a simple one. Ken observed falling geometric shapes that were collected at the bottom of the screen. Every time the shapes lined up to form a horizontal line, the line would disappear and all the remaining shapes would take its place. Simple as the game may be, it took his daughter's full concentration because the shapes would fall down progressively faster. As she furiously manipulated the bricks left and right, Ken could tell she was completely in the zone. Strangely, he himself started rooting for her. Come on, your score's already so high! Damn it. Both Ken and daughter might have cried before heading for dinner reluctantly. That night, Ken would toss and turn on his bed. He couldn't get the excitement out of his head, but it wasn't Tetris that excited him. It was the idea of gaming as an entire industry. Ken knew his daughter wasn't Nintendo's target audience. Traditionally, gaming was meant for kids, particularly boys. There's something here, and I need to get in on it. In 1989, Ken Kutaragi decided that gaming would have potential to grow. But even he couldn't expect that gaming today is a $200 billion empire worth multiples of the entire Hollywood industry. He also wouldn't know then that his role would be pivotal as the father of the PlayStation. From 1UP Media, this is Empires, episode 4 of a four-part series, Disconnected.
Sony's gaming division is massive. Depending on how you slice it across categories, it is usually the top or one of the top three biggest gaming companies in the world. It's no wonder that when Sony's gaming division exploded with the PlayStation 2 in 2000, Sony Group as a whole seemed to have reached its peak success. Unfortunately, some external and internal reasons led to a quick and devastating trajectory downwards that reshaped the new generation's perception of the company. The story of the PlayStation is the last and final arc fraught with betrayal, and at the center of it all is a man named Ken Kutaragi, who is equally controversial. It wouldn't be a proper E3 without introducing the man known in some circles as the father of the PlayStation. It gives me great pleasure to introduce to you one of our company's founders, and the group CEO of Sony Computer Entertainment. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Ken Kutaragi. Not much is known about Ken Kutaragi's childhood. He was born on the 2nd of August, 1950, in Tokyo. Much of his life seemed ordinary and followed a somewhat typical story that an engineer would in those days. He would grow up tinkering rather than playing with toys and scored well in more technical subjects. Upon graduation day, he joined Sony in the digital research labs for his first full-time job. Any Japanese then who had met Ken would have felt a little annoyed. He was outspoken, brash, and despite his upbringing, exhibited little of that Japanese's agreeability. He rarely respected authority, and in some instances would even instruct his bosses to translate his words into English during meetings with their American counterparts. But this behavior fit perfectly well with one person in Sony, Norio Oga, who became CEO from 1989 to 1999 of Sony. Oga had entered Sony through an equally rude letter to Sony, criticizing the quality of their tape recorders. Akio Morita, Sony's founder who had read the review, found honest, unsolicited feedback a rarity and hired him straight away. You can see how Oga might have seen a version of himself within Ken. Of course, Ken wasn't all talk. He himself had excellent engineering capabilities, contributing significantly to the first LCD and the Mavica, the first still video camera which shook the industry. His rebellious nature, coupled with capability to match and Oga's favor, was a potent brew that empowered Ken to have ludicrous opinions. But in the mid-1980s, even he knew that talking about gaming within Sony would be foolish. Back then, many things were happening within Sony. As engineers, they had established themselves as the best within consumer electronics with the first usable color TV and the Walkman. Sony had also expanded its business segments through acquisitions and joint ventures, capitalizing on the appreciating yen that gave rise to its insurance, music, and movies business units. As far as Sony was concerned, they had enough on their hands. And with the lost decades looming, everyone is prioritizing consolidation rather than expanding to other business segments such as gaming, a business that was traditionally viewed for children. Here's where the story begins to get messy. It was unclear in the records who approached first, but Ken, 
desperate to get a foothold inside gaming, found himself working in secret with Nintendo, who needed a new sound chip for their upcoming 16-bit console. The SPC-700, which he invented in secret, allowed Nintendo to release movie-like sound and music within games that traditionally had beeps and bops. Everyone was happy except the Sony executives, who learned of the deal only on the day of the agreement. All hell broke loose, and Ken was certain his career would be over, until Oga, who was president at the time, allowed the deal. With Oga's blessing, Sony, or rather Ken and Nintendo became official partners, ready to embark on their next project, the Super Nintendo System or SNES. The SNES would require two devices that Sony were experts in, a CD add-on and a console. Together, it would form the first PlayStation. It's early morning in June 1991, CES, and history was about to be made. Sony's keynote yesterday had everyone fired up. The most exciting teaser was released that Sony would be collaborating with Nintendo to release a new game system titled the PlayStation. It was exciting that two Japanese companies were defiant against the lost decades and chose innovation as their weapon. Sony has always been producing consumer electronics like no other. And finally, we'll be making an impact on gaming with the best in the industry. Nintendo. You'll learn more tomorrow, but let's just say you wouldn't want to miss it. The announcement worked. It was a brilliant move that made Nintendo's announcement the most exciting part of CES 1991. Ken Kutaragi was standing near the Nintendo booth, and for once he was on his best behavior. It took some time, but they managed to successfully integrate both the CD player and the console. But the best part was that everyone in Sony was happy, because they managed to broker a deal that allowed Sony to retain licensing for CDs. This meant that with every CD game sold, Sony would make profits and it was well known that profits were made on the games, not the console. All his days working with Nintendo would finally pay off, and he could finally return the favor to Oga, who had believed in him. He's finally here, one of the reporters exclaimed, as Nintendo president Hiroshi Yamauchi went up on stage. With a smiling face, he began announcing, Thank you for joining us. As you know, we've been working in secret with the original developer of the CD format. They are an excellent technology company with a long history in innovation. Ken was brimming. What an excellent way to introduce us, he might have thought. Decades back, Sony and Philips worked together to create the CD format. And in 1986, it was the predominant format for entertainment. You guys would have already guessed who our secret partner is. Yamauchi looked across the room. Our secret partner is... Philips. In the 1991 Consumer Electronics Show, Nintendo blatantly backstabbed Sony in a move clearly designed to gut 
all of Sony's ambitions and kill off a likely rival. But instead, it would become Ken Kutaragi's origin story. Back at Sony, Oga was furious. According to some sources, he even called up Nintendo and the Philips CEO to stop the deal. But nothing worked. Left with little choice, he called a board meeting to assess what to do next. Let's kill it. Yeah, I think we did enough here. PlayStation was a bet, and we lost, so that's that. It was clear. Everyone protested against it. Everyone except Ken Kutaragi, who was begging Oga for another shot. We'll do it without Nintendo, and the best part is that we're going to beat them legitimately. To Oga, he might have noticed something familiar. It reminded him of the old days when his mentor Morita was suggesting the Walkman. This could be huge, he thought. In the coming days, Oga decided to pull Ken Kutaragi's small team into a new division, Sony Music, which was a separate entity from Sony Corporation. Much of the company thought Ken was a sore thumb, so why not allow him to work covertly elsewhere, in a division with the ability to print CDs? With the blessing of Oga and Sony's war chest, Ken got right to work. Sony didn't know at the time, but they had stumbled into what we call a platform problem. It is more commonly known now because the largest startups turned MNCs in the world were platform-based companies. Facebook, Uber, Twitter, Tinder, etc. The platform problem refers to a chicken and egg issue whereby a Facebook user wouldn't use Facebook unless his friends are on it. How do you get anyone to start if everyone is waiting for everyone? For the PlayStation, no one would adopt the device unless there are games. If no one adopts it, then few people would buy the games and few developers would produce for it. It's a loop that would surely seal Sony's fate. But Ken understood the market well and targeted all game developers first. In the early 1990s, the gaming landscape was heavily controlled by Nintendo that treated all their developers poorly. Very often, a developer must pay Nintendo to produce their game cartridges, a medium that most developers wouldn't even want to use anyway as it stored less data than CDs. To any developer who met Sony, they must have felt like a breath of fresh air. They supported game developers by allowing a fast onboarding process, taking two weeks versus Nintendo that took months. They also offer higher royalty rates and pledge their huge Sony Music sales team to help distribute the games. This instantly attracted all large third-party game suppliers. Sony also promoted the CD format with an intuitive interface. This lowered entry for independent game developers who previously needed a more expensive workstation just to produce Nintendo-compatible games. But more importantly, according to industry lore, Sony bent over backwards to court and please third-party developers. Without any PlayStation sold yet, developers began producing games as if it was going to become a hit. Ken had discovered how to solve the hard side. In most platform problems, there's a group that's harder to court than anyone else, often called the hard side. But if you can bring the hard side in, you can almost create the platform overnight. For Uber, it's the drivers. For Tinder, it's the women. 
for Sony PlayStation, it's the game developers. If Sony could launch with more games than anyone else in the market, it would be a no-brainer for any consumer to join. By the end of 1994, Ken was ready to launch the new PlayStation. But right before he could do so, Sony executives requested to make the Sony logo smaller. This way, if the launch was unsuccessful, people would recognize that the PlayStation had failed, not Sony. On December 3rd, 1994, the first 100,000 PlayStation consoles were retailed across Japan. Ken and team waited cautiously to see the results. Quite quickly, the first 100,000 units sold out. So they shipped out the next 200,000. Again, sold out. This would happen over and over again until it sold 100 million units over its lifetime. A huge driving force besides Sony's massive marketing budget and sales support was the game developers. In total, the PlayStation had 8,000 unique games versus Nintendo's same-year release, the N64, at 400. Its record was topped swiftly by Sony again on 4th March 2000 when Sony released the PlayStation 2, selling over 150 million units. Phil Harrison, who helped build the gaming division in Sony's early years, claimed that during those golden years, the gaming division had delivered 90% of the company's profit. As for Nintendo, they were forced to become a niche business in the next decade. If you entered a home in 2000, it wouldn't be uncommon to notice Sony everywhere you go. Sony TVs, radio, sound systems, Walkmans, CDs, DVD players, PlayStations, and cameras. And all the while, they were almost certainly the most expensive within their category. It follows Morita's philosophy, which was then adopted by Apple, whereby if a brand consistently produces the best products, consumers will naturally come even if the price is expensive. But that's provided the criteria of what makes the best product is fulfilled. By the mid-2000s, the world was becoming vastly different. North America's internet penetration was peaking at 70% of the continent's population. The premiumness that the sharpest TV can command started waning as people turned towards desktop devices for entertainment. By 2006, Sony had lost their top placing within the television category, ceded to cheaper manufacturers who could produce just enough sharpness at a lower price. During this period, Samsung from South Korea was the rising star, and they didn't only produce sharp enough TVs, they knew that the race for TVs would be on smartness. In 2008, Along with LG, Panasonic, and Philips, they released their first version of the Smart TV. Sony only released theirs one year later in 2009. As more entrants began to produce smarter TVs for cheap, the TV business became a bleeding segment for Sony for the next eight years. Sony losing the smart TV race highlighted an issue beyond TV. Somehow, Sony could never figure out how to get their devices connected or smart affordably. 
When they launched their first computer series under the Vio brand, they were always viewed as too expensive for consumers despite their innovation. The Vio Pro 13 series, released in 2013, was the world's lightest 13-inch Ultrabook at the time, which had rave reviews but was viewed as too expensive. In 2014, Sony finally exited the category by selling the Vio brand to a Japanese investment firm. So why couldn't Sony get smart? There's a couple of reasons. Firstly, not just Sony, but Japan was experiencing an aging population. In Japan, the median age shifted to 42 years old by the mid-2000s, while Korea and America were at 35. For a company like Sony, senior management gut is critical because Morita insists on doing away with consumer research. An aging upper management coupled with hierarchical structure that puts them further away from the consumer naturally affects their gut sensing. Secondly, the then-CEO Nobuyuki Idei, who ran Sony from 1995 to 2005, had over-prioritized their gaming, music, and films division. Idei had attended Al Gore's speech about the information superhighway in person, two years before he became CEO. To Idei, the speech felt like a meteorite that landed onto his earth, and he thought that Sony, the manufacturer, must quickly evolve into Sony, the company with intangible assets. He was mostly right, and often credited for evolving the division but at the expense of their consumer electronics dominance, eventually losing to Apple and Samsung. Nobuyuki Idei's single-mindedness on intangible assets also caused a division between Sony, between those who do hardware and software. A division that the next CEO, Howard Stringer, admitted was difficult for him to solve. The division would prevent Sony from being the dominant player in the connected home race during a time where everyone had Sony products inside their homes. While it's easy to blame anyone for Sony's decline, hindsight is always 2020. In another universe, if Idei had ignored the gaming, music, and films division, would Sony have become worse off? Possibly. If not, why does Apple TV exist? Thirdly, Sony made some big bets that failed. Worst of all was its bet on Blu-ray, a new type of disc format that could store about 10 times the data that a DVD could. While ultimately they won, as an overall form, discs lost to streaming, as TVs got smarter and more connected. While Sony's heydays of total consumer electronic dominance seem certainly over, you would be remiss to say that their empire has fallen. In true Sony fashion of constant innovation, they managed to create image sensors that no one supplier could beat, most noticeably by enabling low-light photography on phone cameras in 2009. Apple simply wouldn't be able to compete, and that's why the iPhone still uses Sony phone cameras today. Outside of legacy technology, Sony is still showing that it has the power to make people believe. Its fringe technologies such as the PSVR 2, released in 2023, is a VR attachment module that can connect with the PS5. They offer what VR enthusiasts can only dream of, with haptics and eyeball tracking that competes with Meta's own VR headset. 
With a diversified portfolio that includes Spider-Man, Sony has a huge hand to play and many routes to take. Regardless of its choice, it is certain that Akio Morita and Masaru Ibuka's spirit lives on as Sony continues to innovate for the next decade. Sony has done it again. This is the latest in camera technology. Here to talk about that this morning is the man who spells Sony, Akio Morita. Yes, actually, this basically this is the same as a video camera. From One Up Media, this is Empires, episode four of a four-part series, Disconnected. In the next episode, we interview someone close to the industry to learn what the future holds for Sony as the world rapidly evolves. And in our next series, we explore one of the top three largest conglomerates in Korea, Samsung. Empires is a one-up media original, produced and edited by Guangjin, audio experienced by Ethan Sam, and narrated by Peter Ng. A quick word on our reenactments and dramatizations. While we can't know exactly what they say, think, or feel at the moment, it is all based on research. Thank you for listening. <laughs>